Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Well, day four of the Men's World Cup in Qatar and Spain asserted their dominance. Japan got their first win over Germany. And our panel of Mark Schwarzer, Tommy Orr and Scotty McDonald will join me to take you through all the action. Belgium also managed to squeeze out a win over Canada and Morocco and Croatia served up our third nil-all draw of the tournament. I'm your host, Amy Duggan, and this is the Optusport Football Podcast. Let's get into the Gagan Pod. Hello and welcome to the Gagan Pod. I'm joined by a great panel of Socceroos legends today in Tommy Orr, 28 caps for the Socceroos, including the 2014 World Cup. One of my favourite Socceroos strikers, Scotty Mack, with 26 appearances or feathers in his cap. And we'll also hear from our golden glove, Mark Schwarzer, who's also got a point to drive home today on an important Australian football issue. So welcome, boys. First, overnight, we saw four matches. Let's review those, starting with the biggest win we've seen so far in the World Cup. Of course, we're talking about Spain's huge win over Costa Rica. Now, Tommy Orr, Spain had 82% possession. Costa Rica failed to even have a shot on goal. Are the Spanish firmly amongst the favourites now? Yeah, obviously we uh, we went into we discussed them yesterday, the prospects of this side, and I think that that was a real statement. You know, it was a kind of echoing. Um, the England game, and, you know, they really imposed themselves on the tournament. But I think the one kind of takeaway from that game was the balance that they play with, you know. Their midfield trio of Busquets, Pedri and Gavi, are, you know, they, they completely dictated the game, and Costa Rica had no answer. And, you know, six different goal scorers for, for seven goals, I think there's a lot to look forward to for Spain in this tournament. Look, it was just nice to see goals, wasn't it, in the tournament? There's been, you know, I think it's been a, a tournament so far of defences on top, um, structure has been really in place by every team that's that's played in the World Cup thus far. So it's actually nice to get a bit of entertainment. Um, obviously, last night uh, with with Spain, obviously showing their qualities and really now posing an intent in terms of the the tournament itself. Spoken like a true striker and a true fan, you are, Scotty. All right. Spain only lost on penalties at Euro 2020's semi-final to Italy. Uh, They haven't been on the list of favourites until now. Have they flown under the radar a little bit as they build into this tournament? I think so. And I think um, with their manager, they've obviously got, you know, with Luis Enrique, they've obviously got um, someone that's extremely experienced and um, yeah, I think they'll be better for their for their experience in that European Championships. You know, they've got a young squad, obviously sprinkled with some experienced players like Busquets, but I think they'll be better for the experience that they had a couple of years ago. And for me, I mean, yeah, I think that they'll go be right there until the end. Whether or not they win it, I'm not sure, but I think, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to watching at the back end of this tournament, definitely. Look, yeah, look, I think for me, like you said there, Tommy, about Luis Enrique, a manager that's, you know, loads of experience, obviously, domestically, and obviously had his time in Spain, walked away, come back. It's 
it's good to see obviously him implementing his style again and look with him with him at the helm you know that they've got every chance of winning this world cup so seven shots on target seven goals six different scorers as you mentioned who are some of the players that we should be looking out for in this world cup tommy yeah, well, I think um, one player who we haven't really seen too much of, or I haven't personally since the last Europe European uh, Championships, was uh, Danny Olmo. And obviously he got on the, on the score sheet last night. But I think that, yeah, he, he was fantastic last night. And, you know, he brings so much energy to the front third. They've all got such technical players. But I think the energy that he brings to the side is a bit of a point of difference to the other players. So I'm really looking forward to seeing how he kind of evolves and grows into this tournament. I look for... For me, I think it's just nice to see Pedri fully fit again. Um, obviously, the Barcelona player, I think he's a wonderful talent. Um, and, you know, he's excellent again last night. And I'm looking forward to seeing how he progresses in the tournament itself as well. So, Gavi became the youngest goal scorer at a World Cup since Pele. And that happened back in 1958. So, what a record to break. Is this his breakout World Cup, Scotty? Well, you'd have to say yes, wouldn't you? In terms of you know scoring in your in your first game of the World Cup, being the youngest, there certainly be all eyes on him now uh, throughout the tournament. Um, it, it gets a great start for him and for Spain, um, and absolutely, I, I think it could be a breakout uh, campaign for him. Yeah, I think, and also the, on top of that, he's playing in somewhat familiar surroundings. You know, he's playing with a lot of the players that he plays with at Clubland as well, which is a is a massive benefit not only for him but for the for the team. You know, that familiarity on the pitch. Um, yeah, and I'm sure that that's also going to contribute to helping him have a good tournament. Much to look forward to from this Spanish team who certainly set the field alight overnight. In the other game, and in most people's eyes, was an absolute upset. Germany leading, but then going down 2-1 to Japan. We're going to bring in Mark Schwartzer now from Qatar, who, by the way, Schwartzer, you did chip Germany to win the whole thing. How are you feeling about that now? Yes, Germany were my tip for the World Cup. Um, wow. 1-0 up, cruising, creating chances after chances. Gundogan's big chance where he hits the outside of the post. Um, should have scored. And um, they, they're made to pay. The minute uh, Japan scored the equaliser, uh, to be fair, they only looked like one wing winner. And I, I was very, very surprised at the way Germany fell away. Um, surprised how they crumbled under the pressure. Um, and uh, very, very disappointing, um, I have to say. And uh, there were warning signs uh, enough throughout the game that, that Japan were capable, were dangerous, and if Germany didn't take their chances, they could find themselves in trouble. And ultimately, that's what happens. Uh, they're in trouble. And now they've put themselves in an incredibly difficult position. They've got Spain, who are absolutely flying after beating uh, Costa Rica. Uh, not Well, not even beating them, absolutely thumping them 7-0. And uh, I think Germany are really up against it now. The, the pressure mounts. Yes, they've got top quality players, goes without saying, but they put themselves in such a predicament that the pressure is getting greater and greater. And if they lose against Spain, they're gone. Um, and that's what I mean. That's the pressure they put themselves into. And uh, look, they're more than capable to beating, of, of beating Spain uh, because I think Spain beat a very, very poor Costa Rica side. Um, but I also think that Spain are a good side and... and uh, they're going to do everything they possibly can to knock out Germany, Germany because they, they know that if Germany does get going, they could pose a threat. So, bitterly disappointing. And uh, I've still got hope, though, that the Germans, with the quality that they have, they'll have enough still to, to get a result against Spain, if not beat Spain, but also then to, to 
to beat uh, Costa Rica comfortably. Yeah, well, we just have to wait and see how the rest of your tipping goes then because I can't see Germany making it all the way through now. They do have Spain next. Uh, Schwarzer said there that uh, they're up against it now. So, Tommy, how do they recover? Yeah, I mean, all eyes are on that game. I think that's looming to be a cracking game. And, I mean, you know, Japan will be going, looking at the Costa Rica game, knowing that a good result in that one will put them in, you know, a fantastic position to progress. So, it's almost a, a do or die situation now for Germany in that match. And um, I mean, you know, in the game uh, last night against Japan, I thought that Germany actually played really well and they were just uh, not clinical in front of goal. And I think that, you know, they don't really need to change too much. I just think that with a, with a little bit more, you know, clinicalness in front of goal, that um, yeah, it could have been a completely different result. So, I mean, they'll be frustrated, but I think that, yeah, I mean, you know, if they were, they're probably looking at this World Cup thinking that they're a chance to win it and they're going to have to beat the likes of, you know, your Spains eventually in the tournament anyway. So they're probably just going to have to do it a bit earlier than they would have liked. Yeah, look, they're, they're under serious pressure um, already once again, obviously failing last World Cup campaign. This is not the, the start that they wanted. Um, like Tommy said there, though, they played they played quite well, actually, in the game. 76% possession tells you that in 26 uh, six shots on goal. Uh, tells you that they didn't have a bad game, but like Tommy touched on, you know, clinically in front of goal, they just didn't have it on the night. And look, you know Japan's strengths and qualities. Uh, they're a disciplined unit. Um, they're, they're very, very quick on the counter-attack and have technically gifted players, just like we've seen with the second goal, which was a wonderful finish. Um, for, for Germany, though, I'd like to see Leroy Sane obviously get the nod um, and get himself into that squad. Musiala is a, a wonderful player as well. Um, I, I thought he was excellent again last night. I just love watching him play. Um, but for me, yeah, Sane's had a decent season for Bayern Munich so far as well. Um, doesn't always get on with his coaches. I think that's pretty pretty much a problem. But if anyone knows him well, it's Hansi Flick. So uh, I think they need goals. Uh, and I think Leroy Sane can provide them. Yeah, if you if looking at the game as well last night, I think yeah, there were so many times where you know one more extra pass from Gundogan or from Kimmich or whoever it was in the midfield, and it would have been a certain goal. But they kind of rushed rushed their chances, and that was very uncharacteristic for a German side that you normally associate with being very clinical. So. Um, yeah, again, I'm sure they're frustrated, but I don't think it's the end of the tournament for them. There is a little bit of a crossover uh, between Japanese football and German football. Japan's manager, Hajime Moriyasu, has said that German football has helped to shape Japanese football. Schwartzy, I know you've got some thoughts on what the Socceroos can learn from that approach. I think what Australia can learn is that um, we need to encourage uh, to to push our players, our young players particularly, to strive for the utmost, to strive for the highest level, to play in some of the top leagues around the world. And uh, I think it, it kind of starts with if one player goes and has success, um, a bit like myself when we came overseas, you know, Bosnich, Mark Bosnich was, was the trailblazer in a lot of ways, John Fyland, um, in terms of goalkeepers in England and it kind of opened people's eyes to the potential that there may be more Australian goalkeepers out there that, that um, have have talent. And I think uh, Japan have shown that with their players going to, to Germany in particular, culturally they feel obviously um, settled. Um, I'm not quite sure how that, that works. I'm not quite sure why the fit with Germany is so good. Um, maybe it's the discipline. Maybe it's the, uh, the professionalism. Um, maybe they can relate the, the Japanese players to it. 
but they certainly have found a home in Germany and, and do flourish um, in the German Bundesliga. And uh, I'd like to, I'd hope one day that we will have as many possible as possible players playing for the Socceroos that are playing in the European leagues. And I've said it for so many years now, for so long that um, we need our players playing at the highest level, the highest possible level. And there's always going to be the temptation of going to Asia. And I completely understand it because of the money that's on offer. But unfortunately, more times than not, it's a really, really short-term fix. And it's generally a massive backward step in terms of players' development. And I'm not trying to be negative about the leagues in Asia because I'm a big fan of the Asian leagues. Absolutely, I'm, I'm a fan of Asian Confederation and Australia's participation and everything else. However, why do Japan send their players? Why do their players, their better players, try to leave Japan and go to the best leagues? Because they want to better themselves. They want to test themselves there are not many Japanese players playing in any other league around Asia other than in the J-League. And you can see that by by coming to Europe, their players flourish, they develop, they become better players from it. And we've shown before in the past, Australia, with the vast majority of our players playing in European leagues, that the quality of the national team is is better for it. And I don't believe there's a coincidence in that more and more Australian players are heading towards Asia and therefore it's part of the the stunting of our development of players. Let's put it that way. And um, I've said it for a long time. I, I, I just hope that the next generation of players, and it seems to be the case that the, there is a real hunger, a real de- desire and determination to come to Europe, which previous generations have had, but also they have this desire to see it out to fight to when it's going bad when it's not working i spent two and a half years in 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 germany before i had a chance to play anywhere and and settle and find a club and my story is no different to so many players around my generation that had to fight had to dig deep had to move um went through so many hard times to try and break through we didn't have a fallback. We had the only option we had was to try and make it work. So determined to make it work, um, and therefore, that once you get over that hurdle, once you fight your way through, you're better for it. And I just feel that we don't have many players who are doing that this day, in, in these days, and that certainly I think has a detrimental effect to the development of our players and a knock-on effect, meaning the end result, the national team also suffers from it. Scotty, do you agree with Mark? Yeah, I do, absolutely. Uh, look, this is this is a subject that we could go on and on about um, for many a year. Obviously, the finances and the riches of what Asian football gives the individual player, um, the, it's arguable that it's uncomparable and, and they have to go there because the money is just so much that it's life-changing. However, for the benefit of the game and, and for, for Australian football, there's no question that you know having your your top players go to Europe, uh, uh, it's going to be far better and, and far more competitive for the for the national teams as well and and being on the national stage um, and the experiences that you do gain from them. Um, look, having a, a you know a, a local competition as well, things have changed that players get comfortable in their own environments and and don't want to venture further afield. Um, but certainly we're seeing a, a change in that narrative, in, in, particularly in the, the last couple of years, obviously with Garen Kual now going and, and a few others, Rustich doing well in Europe. 
hopefully now this is the the, the, the tide is turning uh, and now we're seeing you know, a lot more of our players now wanting to head to Europe rather now the money train is sort of drying up in Asia. Yeah, I completely agree as well. And, you know, looking at more in depth at the at the Japan example, you know, they have eight players in their squad that play in the Bundesliga now. So there's a, a definite link between those two competitions. And I think that, you know, now there's a, there's a definite pathway and then German, German football clubs are looking at Japanese players and knowing that they can add value to their squad. So, I mean, there's a little bit of that now going on. And Scotty, I'm sure you're on top of this as well. In Scotland as well, you know, a few of Aussies have gone there and done well in recent years. And, now they're definitely looking to Australia to, you know, for, to the knowing that players can add something to the league there. So these are the types of kind of relationships that we need to kind of, yeah, grow. And, um, yeah, clearly Japan's done well to, in, in their example. Mm, interesting thoughts. Well, Schwartzy, there was another event you witnessed overnight. It was a press conference not related to the Socceroos, though. Uh, it has stirred up some emotions with you. Well, today was a very interesting day. Um, we were advised beforehand that there was going to be a media conference um, set up with uh, Australian Minister of Sport, the Honorary uh, Anika Wells MP, and Football Australia Chief Executive James Johnson to discuss the Women's World Cup 2023, Australia and New Zealand. So, me being me, thinking completely that we're going to be talking, or at least uh, the people in the room are going to be fielding questions regarding the Women's World Cup next year in Australia and New Zealand. Um, so I sat in there with interest to, to listen, uh, to inform myself a little bit better as to how the, um, the Australian government is involved, what sort of support they're lending towards it, and also James Johnson's um, uh, response to uh, the government's involvement as well as uh, any of the questions that the, the press may, may put forward. And being involved with Optus Sport and the coverage next year, um, I felt that it was a good opportunity just to sit in and, and, and find out a little bit more information. Um, the interesting thing is there was not one single question, I think, f- uh, uh, put to either uh, the honorary Anika Wells uh, or James Johnson about the Women's World Cup next year. Um, it was all about uh, the Socceroos, development of football and so on. And the longer it went on for, the more that um, uh, the Honourable Anika Wells M- MP spoke about uh, grassroots football and the desire to help the development and finding ways to um, really, really uh, contribute to the youth and development of grassroots football. Um, and James Johnson obviously added his parts to it. And, and the more that they spoke and the more that the questions came in uh, regarding various topics around football, uh, around the Socceroos, um, the more I started to think about grassroots football, that sort of struck a, a tone with me. And the first thing that popped in my head was was the cost involved in playing football and how I've had literally hundreds and hundreds of people talk to me and mention to me and message me and, and so forth over, over the last couple of years about the exorbitant costs, the extreme costs, uh, the highway robbery um, that's associated with playing at a more elite level. So, okay, it, it moved on from grassroots football in my head, but it was also, it was all related. And that how we are the most participated uh we have the most participation about all the sports in Australia by quite a considerable margin in playing football. And why is it, how is it that we get to a certain level that we lose 
uh, that participation that we lose so many players, potential athletes, footballers uh, to other codes. And obviously, the first thing that sprung to mind, like I said, is is, is, the, is people's thoughts and uh, and uh, expressions of, of disgust at times and disappointment um, that to get any sort of kind of uh, better coaching, uh, more more extensive coaching, uh, the only way it was possible most of the time was through paying more money. And we're talking thousands and thousands of dollars per annum per child. And I looked around the room and I saw Harry Kuehl sitting there, Tim Cahill sitting there, and I thought of myself growing up as a kid and knowing that growing up as a kid, why? I never ever thought of the fact that we had to pay money to play football. And I don't ever remember a time, unless my parents are going to correct me, but I'm, I'm sure it wouldn't have been at any time that my parents had to pay any sorts of exorbitant fees to for me to play football. Actually, the most the big, the biggest expense for, for my parents was always, as a goalkeeper, buying buying good goalkeeping gloves in Australia and also good boots because back, even back in the day they were expensive, um, coming from a very working-class background. And... That was always, at, well, often at times, a struggle or we didn't go on, on holidays because of that. So let alone, I can only imagine what it must be like for families today to have to pay thousands and thousands of dollars per year per child and if you've got two or three children playing football. Um, I mean, on top of school fees and top of everything else and certainly if you send your kids to a private school, um, the cost of living, all sorts of stuff. Um, and... We've talked about it in the past before and in, in, uh, openly amongst former players when we had discussion groups, um, but with very little answers or certainly questions directed to people in positions of power, position, people who can make a difference. Um, we can voice our concern. We can voice our distaste at the cost. We can voice our um, displeasure of the fact that people have to pay so much money these days. Um, and it's out of control, in my opinion. Um, so I thought there was the perfect opportunity. And since it was talked about and since, uh, you know, the, the Minister of Sport talked about the fact that grassroots put, uh, f- sport is so important and she really wants to make a difference um, and the considerable amounts of money that James Johnson also pointed out that the government has in the last 18 months contributed to football in Australia, um, my thoughts turned to Why? Why is there no um, help being put out there? Why isn't it being subsidised? If there's that much money being invested in football, why isn't part of that being subsidised towards development, towards training, to better training, to allowing all kids from all backgrounds, regardless of financial positions of any family, that they're able to get better elite coaching um, at, at, a, at, a, at a normal rate, at a, at a, at a very acceptable rate um, uh, of a very minimal fee, if any fee at all. I mean, I'm all for that we shouldn't even have to pay any fees. I think it should be completely subsidised and finding ways of doing that. I mean, maybe I'm maybe I'm completely delusional in that regard, but I, I'd like to think that, okay, I understand there's registration fees, but surely the registration fees shouldn't be more than, you know, $150, $200 maximum a year. I, I can't imagine any more. I, I don't know. Um and uh, the the sports minister um, Anika Wells then went on to say that you know 
when I was actually talking about how much it was costing and parents, and she was just nodding her head saying, like, she was agreeing with me that she knows herself. She's had the experience that she knows how much it is and how expensive it is and that it's crazy. And that she wants to know where they can invest and how they can invest and do it better. And if grassroots is the area, is if it's the, 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 the grassroots to the more elite development area, uh, where the investment is needed, then she's all is. And when I also then, at the same time, asked James Johnson to then explain if the government is ex- uh, spending that much more money and or, or contributing so much money, taxpayers' money, to football, where is it all going? Why isn't some of that used to subsidise, to reduce the cost for uh, the average family, for any family, for anyone who wants to play football, uh, even for an elite coaching level? Um, it should be next to, to nothing um, and he went on to say that they've developed an app and registrations are all being done through apps now and will, will be by 2023 and that it's this great new thing and I still fail to to understand how that's going to help reduce the costs for any kind of elite training and then James also mentioned that um, that there's only a small percentage of players who are playing at a more elite level whether it's whether it's uh, NPL level, whether it's a, a specialized training level, elite level, there's only a very small percentage. So that obviously in my head was, okay, if it, if it is only a very small percentage, then it should be easy to subsidize. It should be easy then to cover the costs. But he went on to explain that a lot of that money has been now developed in, uh, uh, sorry, uh, filtered into uh, development of the, the youth national teams, um, giving them more time to prepare for tournaments. Which I, I totally agree, there should be a contribution, there should be an improvement in that. But for me, they're related because your next youth international players are these age groups, these kids from whether it's 10 to 16 years old that are paying these exorbitant fees and, and above. They're the ones that should be, they're the ones that you're using, you're, you're preparing, you're trying to develop, trying to find the next Harry Kuehl, the next um, Mafuduka, the next Tim Cahill. They're, they're the groups you need to be fighting. Um, the next Matty Ryan, you know, the next Adam Rustich, uh, Awama Bill. You know, we, we, we need to invest the money more wisely and we need to stop the bleeding of our talent to other sports in Australia. We, we, we are in the perfect position because of the sport. It's a global sport. It's the world game. It's the most popular game on the planet. But the cost of it is driving people away, and, and, it's, and it's called the people's game. Look, I've got the best example here being at the World Cup because it's not the people's game. It's exorbitant. So it actually is at the top. It starts at the very, very top. The World Cup, the pinnacle, is exorbitant how much it costs to come here in a country. You look at the last three World Cups, last four World Cups, South Africa, Brazil, Russia, and you look now in Qatar how expensive and how exclusive it is or it's become. And that's just crazy for me. And we're copying it in Australia. We're copying it all over the world. And it has to change. It needs to stop. And I just felt it was the perfect opportunity to put the, the questions to um, our sports minister and also our CEO uh, of the FFA. Do I feel like I got an answer? I, I'm, I'm, I'm happy with the answer I got from our sports minister, Anika Wells. And she's open. She wants to know. She wants to hear what needs to be done, how it needs to be approached. 
But I'm not happy with the response I received from James Johnson. James Johnson, I, I, I'm still, I still don't understand how an app for registering Australian players across the country is going to save them any money. I don't know how, at elite level, that's going to save them any money to reduce the costs of uh, elite training for our talented players coming through with the opportunity to try and develop them further and give them the perfect opportunity to then be ready to develop through to our national teams, our youth national teams, to go overseas to develop. What we're doing is relying on individual families to cover the costs to try and push these kids even further through. Um, and generally speaking, the ones that are able to do it are the ones who have the money and the means to do so and not necessarily the one that has all the talent. Um, and they're the ones we're missing the we're missing the the boat on, and I don't feel I got the answer at all. Um, maybe James was completely uh, blindsided by the by the question. Maybe he felt that it was a, a the right the right answer to give at that time in terms of it was the the the, the company answer. I'm not sure, but I, I certainly don't think it answered my question in any way, shape, or form. Some great and uh, very passionate points there, Mark. So, Tommy, what, what do you think about Mark's comments? Yeah, I mean, it, it's difficult to disagree with him. I think, um, you know, there, there's, there's, you could talk about this topic all day, obviously, but, um, yeah, it, it's a serious issue and something that we're going to have to address, you know, the, but I don't think there's a, a simple answer. I mean, um, yeah, you look at the football pyramid in Australia and the way that the money kind of flows down the pyramid and, um Unfortunately for us, it's not getting to, to the bottom, to the grassroots where, where we need it to. And I mean, you can look look at the reasons why it's not. And I think there's definitely still a lot to be said for, um, you know, the government grants and in increasing the level of them. If you look at the other codes, I don't, still don't think we're getting our fair share. But I mean, internally, the way that we kind of distribute the money in the game to, you know, help grow the grassroots and to make football more accessible and not just a, a sport for the elite is something that we need to improve and um, at the moment there, there's so much red tape and so much you know bureaucracy that I think that um, yeah it's, it's going to be a big challenge for us and I think that, that it definitely is an issue that has been acknowledged um, by the A-League clubs in the last couple of years and um, I mean they, they've obviously kind of chipped away and started to put things in, in process to try and address it but I mean, it's a long road ahead, but I mean, you look at the likes of Central Coast Mariners now and the academy setup that they've got, there's a definite pathway now from the grassroots to, to get into the Mariners. And I think that that should be a shining example for the, for all the other A-League teams to kind of follow suit and to implement something similar. But um, I think the only other thing I'll add is, you know, the, the Women's World Cup's going to give us a great opportunity to, to create a legacy. And I think that's what our focus needs to be on in the, in the next six months is you don't want the tournament to just, you know, come and go. We need to, you know, try and get, you know, football-specific infrastructure and these types of things that leaves a real legacy from the tournament. And I think that'll be a key focus for the FA in the next six months. And um, hopefully for all of us, they can do it successfully. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. 
Well, welcome back to the Gagan Pod. Let's get back to the match action from Qatar. Belgium and Canada faced off this morning. Uh, a reminder that Canada, it's their first appearance in many, many years and have never scored at the World Cup. Uh, and they couldn't have had a better chance through Alfonso Davies' penalty. So, Tommy, question to you is Thibaut Courtois the best goalkeeper in the world right now after that save? <laughs> well, I mean, he's he's definitely in the conversation. I'm not sure that save was the def- decisive save for that. But, it wasn't I mean, the best pen, was it? <laughs> yeah, I know. But ha- having watched the game, I mean, he's such a imposing goalkeeper. You, you feel like it's going to take a lot to score against him. And, I mean, you look at the game and, you know, Canada was much better than Belgium in this game. And I think that Belgium has, you know, Courtois, Vertonghen and Alderweireld probably to thank for, for the good result. And, um yeah, if Canada had a little bit more, you know, cutthroat or cutting edge in, in, in the box, I think they, they could have won this game for sure. Well, let's talk about that, Scotty, because Canada had a superior shots on goal statistic, but certainly didn't make the most of it, did they? No, I was really impressed by them, Amy. Uh, a, a lot of people's dark horse, you know, for, for this competition in terms of finish top, uh, obviously the, the qualification process beating obviously Mexico and, and, and USA um, to that top spot. Um, what really impressed me was their energy um, and how they pressed Belgium and just didn't give them a minute all night and, and really unsettled Belgium. And it actually made Belgium look old, you know, in terms of the, the squad itself and, and lacking that, you know, obviously Bachelorette gets the, gets the goal, but in terms of that real energy or some threat in behind um, to, to try and break that press, they didn't really have that uh, all night, Belgium. Um, but it was enough to, to, to win on the night. And that's all you need because we've seen a, a lot of, a, quite a few upsets. But Canada themselves can be proud of the performance, but, you know, feel that it probably should have come away with something uh, on the night itself. But I think they're going to pose a real threat to Croatia in, in, in this next game and, and it could cause an upset for me. Yeah, and I think the dynamics of this group more generally are, are very interesting because, you know, Morocco last night was also very impressive as well. So I think that in this group, there's definitely not going to be any clear games where you're going to think that one team's going to win clearly and I think that you know all four teams are in with with a chance to go through if they if they play like they did on the first first match day so I mean yeah this is definitely looming as one of the more intriguing groups for me for sure and uh did you expect more from De Bruyne I thought he was a bit quiet yeah I did um yeah I I mean I I think it's difficult there was a lot of times where you know he had the ball in good positions and he was probably waiting for you know a few more runners, for example, to support him in some of the attacking areas. But, I mean, even you know, towards the end, he had a really good chance to kind of make it 2-0 and then to finish the game off that he he squandered uncharacteristically as well. So, I mean, yeah, he was probably slightly off, but, I mean, you see it a lot as well. You know, they, they didn't play, play the best game they've played, but, but they won. And, you know, it, teams often grow into tournaments like this. They don't necessarily play their best match in the first game. So... I mean, I'm sure that's what they'll be hoping for in, in, in to put in an improved performance as as uh, as the World Cup kind of evolves. Yeah, I think for me, you know, Belgium, that there is a big emphasis and, and a big hope that Romelu Lukaku can get fit and, and play his part. Um, I know that's why he scored, but in terms of, you know, the goal record that Lukaku holds at, at international level and what he gives you up top as a platform for people to run off and, and for De Bruyne to then shine. I, I think in this system that they play with a you know back three with wing backs, they, they're under the pressure a lot, you know, in terms of how Canada pressed them. And when De Bruyne got the ball, he, he didn't have a lot of time or and like Tommy said there, there wasn't a lot of options, you know, further up, up top because the wing backs were pinned back as well. So that, that gave him problems and Hazard, 
as we know, has not played a lot of football and, and isn't the same player as he once was. And, and this is an end of an era for Belgium right now and, and, and a time for some of the other younger ones to now start to, to shine and, and perhaps we'll see a few more of them uh, as the tournament progresses. So they're a little disappointing, as was the result between Morocco and Croatia. I will admit I missed the second half of this one in favour of sleep, but mm. it sounds like I didn't miss too much. Uh, I don't want to go on about the game too much unless you guys have some comments to make, but what I did want to ask was, uh, in light of the fact that there was only one nil all draw in the whole of the 2018 World Cup, what is going on? We've seen our third one already. Yeah, I think that the, the dynamics of this tournament, you know, there's um, there was less lead in. I think teams are probably being a little bit more cautious in their approach. But at the same time, I think that you, you look at a lot of the results on paper and, you know, you look at the Morocco-Croatia game and you would expect that, um, you know, Croatia would probably win that game on paper. But I think that's kind of, it's, it's just a, a proving a trend that's happening around the world where, you know the gulf in class between between the, the the best in the world and the and the sub top is getting smaller and smaller and i think that you know anyone's kind of capable of competing with anyone on any day and i think that's that this world cup is proving that and i think that you know teams are being are very well organized and they're they're very difficult to break down whereas you know historically you know teams would often run away with it. So that, that's kind of the trend that I've seen so far in this tournament. Yeah, look, I think for me, yes, you, you touch on the Croatia-Morocco game. Morocco were very well organised. They've not conceded a goal under their new manager who's been in charge for the last three to four months. Uh, we're seeing a lot of that. Teams lying very deep, 10 men behind the ball. It's not nice to watch at times. It's, you want goals, you want entertainment, you want memories in these, in these big tournaments. Uh, however, being the first game for every team in the competition, no one wants to be behind the eight ball come second game like we see with the likes of you know, Argentina getting that, that shock result. Germany as well now having to win their second game. But being said that, I think then that opens the tournament up because teams have to come out and they have to now go for the win rather than just sit back and try and catch a counter. They need to come out and get all three points. Another thing I'll probably touch on in that is with uh, Tommy said about, obviously, there hasn't been a lot of build-up for a lot of these national teams going into this tournament, particularly European teams and probably South American teams because all their players play in Europe. Whereas you, you look at some of the other nations out with that, you know, the Asian nations, and the, the African nations, well, they've probably had a lot more prep time with one another in terms of the, the squads and, and getting ready and, and how they're going to play structurally. And I think that's helping them at the moment. And I actually think they look a lot fitter as well. Um, and, and ready to go compared to the European teams. I think we're going to see the Europeans and the South Americans just build uh, nicely into this tournament and get better as it progresses, um, whereas the, the African and Asian and even the CONCAFs are, are coming, you know, fully fledged and ready to go already in game one. All right, well, we get back on the park tonight as Group G sees Switzerland take on Cameroon. Then the first Group H match kicks off with Uruguay playing South Korea. Free agent Ronaldo's Portugal lines up against Ghana. And then my winner and my dark horse clash as Brazil take on Serbia in the morning. I guess I'll be winning one way or the other. Uh, we will be back with a wrap of all that action for you tomorrow. Tommy and Scotty, thanks for your time today. Thank you, Amy, as always. Pleasure, thank you. And a big thanks to Schwartzy for getting up for us in Qatar also. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.